We're in Genesis chapter 34 this morning. As we're going to look at uh, two wrongs don't make a right. In his book, Predictably Irrational, researcher Dan Ariely claims that most of us are masters at deceiving ourselves and justifying our actions. In particular, we often make our decisions based not on what's right, but on what we want. <coughs> Ariely tells his own story of buying a car. When I turned 30, he writes, I decided it was time to trade in my motorcycle for a car, but I could not decide which car was right for me. The web was just taking off, and to my delight, I found a site that provided advice on purchasing cars. Professor Ariely uh, describes how he answered all the questions on the website, which then recommended that he purchase a Ford Taurus. He describes his reaction this way. The problem was that, having just surrendered my motorcycle, I couldn't see myself driving a sedate sedan. I was now facing a dilemma. I had tried a deliberative and thoughtful process for my car selection, and I didn't like the answer I got. So I did what I think anyone in my position would do. I hit the back button a few times. Backtracked to earlier stages of the interview process and changed many of my original answers to what I conceived or convinced myself were more accurate and appropriate responses. I kept this up until the, the car advertising website suggested a Mazda Miata. The moment the program was kind enough to recommend a small convertible, I felt grateful for the fantastic software and decided to follow its advice. <laughs> Commenting on what he learned in the process, Professor Ariely says, the experience taught me that sometimes we want our decisions to have a rational veneer when in fact they stem from what we crave deep down. Have you ever experienced that? You're like, ah, I know what the... I know what the right decision is. I know what the rational decision is. I know what I should do here, but uh, I, I'm going to do something different, right? I'm going to choose to do something different because that's really what I want. Sometimes we do that in our walk with the Lord, don't we? We cry out to him, and he says, this is what I want you to do. And you're like, eh, I don't think so, God. No, I'm not supposed to be a pastor. Huh? No. No, I'm not supposed to share Jesus with that friend of mine, my neighbor, or my coworker. No, no, that's not what you're asking me to do. Right? We, we justify things then in our lives. I shared with you, uh, I, I don't know how long ago, it was maybe a month or so ago, in, in a message that um, I did something to another guy on the school bus that prompted him to turn around in the school bus and hit me, right? And then I was upset about that. You know, I'm the one that prompted him to do that because of what I was doing, but I was angry. And so when I was leaving the school bus, I kind of slapped him on the side of the head. And, and of course, I didn't have a lot of self-control at that point or restraint, uh, but I allowed my sinful behavior to get out of control. And there were consequences for my behavior. And if you remember, I told you I had to deliver newspapers uh, right in his development, and I asked my dad if he would drive me. My dad said, nope. He said, you're going to have to suffer the consequences of, of the decisions that you made, allowing your human behavior to get out of control, my sinful human behavior. And so all of us have probably experienced a time in our lives when we have allowed our sinful human behavior to get out of control. And so just take a moment to recall that experience this morning. Just be thinking about that, because we're going to see some things in this passage of Scripture um, that, uh, that are difficult we're going to see two things. 
So take a moment to just recall that experience where you allowed your sinful human behavior to get out of control. You know, as we look at chapter 34, there's not a lot of redeeming qualities in this passage, in this chapter. There just isn't. And so it's a very dark chapter in Genesis as we see a heinous crime that's committed and an equally heinous retaliation enacted upon an entire city. Sin's running rampant throughout this entire narrative. Instead of doing what is right and just, we find that the individuals involved are acting on cravings and sinful desires. Both the initial act and the retaliation spin out of control. And in fact, in this passage of Scripture, we don't even see God at all. He's not consulted about anything that's going on in this chapter. He's silent. And the people involved in, in, this, in this narrative today don't even seek his face. And so we can, what we learn from this passage today is this, that sinful human behavior can easily get out of control. That comes right out of one of the commentaries that I read this week. And so as we let that sink in this morning, would you just bow your heads with me as we just commit it to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we come to you today and we bow in humility before you because every one of us can think of a time where we've allowed our sinful human behavior to get out of control. We haven't sought your face. We haven't sought the advice of fellow believers. We've just acted instinctively, Lord God, and in our humanness. And so we confess that before you this morning. And I pray, Lord God, that as we go through this passage today, as we look at the application for our lives from the different principles, I ask, Lord God, that you would just move by your spirit right now. Would you prepare each heart and mind? Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that I wouldn't speak any words that are not truth. We want truth to be told here. And so, Lord, we just lift it up to you and ask for your guidance and direction. We ask all this in your precious son's name. Amen. We're looking at three points today. Violation, negotiation, and retaliation. And so let's look at verses 1 to 4 in chapter 34. <clears throat> and this is where we talk about violation. This is what God's word says. Now Dina, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land when Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. So we're introduced to the individual who is the center of everything that happens in this chapter. Her name is Dinah, the daughter of Leah and Jacob. We were first introduced to Dinah in Genesis chapter 30, verse 21. She was born to Jacob and Leah sometime later after Leah had already given birth to six sons. It's probable that Jacob and Leah had other daughters also, but Dinah is, mentioned, is the only one mentioned in Scripture. She is between 13 to 15 years old at this time, which was the marriable age in the ancient Near East. So just let that one sink in for a minute. <clears throat> The Hebrew word for went out 
is Yatsah, and it's found in verses 1, 6, 24, and 26. So there's this recurring theme uh, throughout this passage. So Dinah, uh, going out on her own at a marriable age, would have been unusual in the culture of the day. Waltke cites Sarna as saying, Girls of a marriable age would not normally leave a rural encampment to go unchaperoned into an alien city. So this is something unusual that she's doing. She's going without any siblings, without any parents or any adults with her to go in and visit with the women of the land. <clears throat> so Dina was simply going to visit some girlfriends and was not looking for a boyfriend or planning to do anything immoral. She was just going in there. She was inquisitive. She was curious. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. It was improper and imprudent for her to do this. It allowed her to be vulnerable. Now, we're not told if she did this against her parents' wishes. We don't know if she snuck out. We're not given any of those details, so we can't you know, put that on her. We don't know the, the, the background about that or the context. Gangle and Bramer say this, though. The text repeatedly emphasizes her role as Jacob's daughter, suggesting that her behavior was his responsibility. I think that's important for us today to keep in mind. And that leads us to the first principle that as our role as parents is to protect our children. That's our role. Sometimes that means saying no to something that they want to do because we know that it could put them in a compromising situation or a vulnerable position. And it's difficult to have to make the, those decisions for them, but it's important to protect them. We also have to train them to make wise decisions so they don't find themselves in situations or positions that make them vulnerable. Too often, parents want their children to like them, so they allow them to do certain things and go certain places, even though they know it may not be safe. And our role is not to be our children's best friend, but to be their parent, a guiding force in their lives. And of course, as our children mature and become adults, then we can foster a friendship that will uh, last a lifetime. We're in that stage of life, Judy and I are. We love that stage where we get to foster this friendship, this relationship with our kids and their spouses. And wow, it's so much fun to be able to, you know, hopefully we've raised them right, right? And they're making wise decisions. And so we get to make that, have that relationship with them that has matured into a friendship. Parents, it's imperative that you know what your children are viewing online, where they're going with friends, and what they're experimenting with. It's so important. It's important that we model for them what a personal relationship with Jesus Christ look like, looks like and that that relationship takes precedence over everything else. And what we say and do has an incredible impact on our children, whether good or bad. They're listening and watching everything we do, right? They certainly are. So we don't know the circumstances behind Dina going out to visit the women of the land. Matthews contends that Dina's intention in visiting the women of the land was to observe their habits. <clears throat> Again, she's intrigued about something, right, that she's seeing in the Canaanite women. And it's important for us to remember that Abraham, Isaac, and Rebekah were repulsed by Canaanite women and their lifestyle, what they did. They worshipped idols. They did other things that were just detestable to them, and which is why they sought wives for their sons from Padan Aram, from their own family in Haran. And so we don't know what it is that has intrigued Dinah. We do not know if Jacob knew about it ahead of time 
and approved or disapproved all of, uh, disapproved of it. All we know is that she went out. But then we see Shechem's actions here. We are told that Shechem is the son of Hamor, who was the ruler of the area. So he would have been like a prince if Hamor was the king. And we see some actions, a couple of actions first, and, and then three more in just a minute. But the first thing is, is that he saw her. Now, th- there wasn't any sin in recognizing her beauty. It was perhaps love at first sight. He thought to himself, that girl is attractive. Guys, how many of you felt that way the first time you saw the person you're married to now? Yeah, you looked at him, you're like, boy, she's attractive, right? That's what, that's what Shechem's doing here, right? He's like, wow, she's attractive. So no sin in recognizing her beauty, her attractiveness, right? Then it says that he took her, and uh, there would not have been any sin if he had just talked, started talking with her, right? Getting to know her. But he took her, and we're not told how he did that, whether it was through seduction, just talking sweet to her. Hey, why don't you come on over here? Hey, let's go hang out at my place. Hey, I have a PS5. Let's go play some games, right? Yeah, maybe not back then. but um, Or maybe he did it by force. We don't know. We're not told in the passage. Then the third thing that it says that he did, his third action, was that he violated her. And we, we do know from the Hebrew word for violated that the intimate act was not consensual. Golden Gay says this, the third verb implies that they're having sex was not consensual. It's the nearest to a Hebrew verb for rape, though it can also refer to a man having sex with a woman whom he has captured and more and married. We see that in Deuteronomy 21.14. That was something that they did in the ancient Near East. While it was thus, uh, thus need not indicate that he, was, he has violent sex with Dinah, it does suggest that he is behaving like a man who assumes he can do as he likes with a woman and that he violates her. So this is the attitude with which Shechem is coming in. He's the, he's the prince, right? He could have any, any young girl that he wanted. And he sees Dinah, and he says, oh, she's attractive, and I'm, you come with me, and then he violates her. So we goes back to our big idea that sinful human behavior can easily get out of control. Our second principle this morning is this. Pursuing the world can have negative consequences. The negative consequences for Dina were forced upon her. She had put herself in a compromising and vulnerable position. She did not have other siblings or friends with her to help protect her. So that was what was happening with her. She was uh, struggling at that point, I'm sure. And perhaps you've been intrigued by the habits of other people or groups and you're tempted to hang out with them. Are you putting yourself in a compromising or a vulnerable position today? Do you have family or friends that can help protect you? Young people, perhaps you need to avoid certain places and people in order to protect yourself. And that's our first next step today is to ask the Lord to give me wisdom about the people I'm hanging out with and the places where I'm going. And I want to give us a warning today. Hamilton says this, first comes the desire, then the action when that lust is not checked. So sinful human behavior can easily get out of control. Men forcing a woman to be intimate with you is always wrong. Always. There's never a time when it would be right, ever. 
it's always wrong. Lust, if unchecked, will lead to more than just viewing images in a magazine or on a screen. It will lead to acting out what you have viewed. Every one of us needs to be in an accountability relationship with another man so we can live a life of holiness and righteousness. And there is freedom from lust and sexual sin through the power of Jesus Christ that transforms us from the inside out. I want you to understand that today. You can have freedom in a personal relationship with Christ and in being in an accountability with someone else. You can be set free from that. You don't have to struggle with that anymore. And so that's my warning for men today, especially. We see three more actions. He's attached to her, he loved her, and he encouraged her. So attached to her, it can also be translated clung to her. In his lust for Dina, Shechem does not want to lose her. Imagine that. And this is apparent when he asks his father to get me this girl as my wife in verse 4. It's also apparent when we find out that Dina has been held in Shechem's house since the violation took place. We'll see that in verse 26 in just a moment. He loved her. You know, he's, I think he was infatuated with her, right? I don't know if this is love. It's love at first sight. That's pretty unusual, right? And so he's violated her, he's been intimate with her, and now he's like, oh, I love her. And then he, he encourages her, and it can literally be translated that Shechem spoke upon the heart of the girl. Hamilton puts it this way, the expression occurs ten times in the Old Testament, always in less than ideal situations, where there is a sense of guilt or re- repentance, where A attempts to persuade B of his feelings. That's what Shechem's doing here. He's like, it's going to be okay. You know, I, I love you, Right? <laughs> I'll ask your dad if I can have your hand in marriage. Everything's going to be great. Now note, Shechem is not apologizing for what he's done, but rather he's trying to convince Dina that everything's going to be all right. And I'm certain that Dina is struggling to feel loved by Shechem. This is what love looks like to you? I don't feel loved. I feel hurt. I feel violated. And Shechem enlists his father to to make the marriage arrangements after the fact. He's gotten the cart before the horse. And so principle three is this. God is not pleased whenever we try to justify our sin. That's what he's doing here. How many of us have done that in our own lives? We've tried to make things, quote unquote, right after we've done something wrong, after we've sinned. How many couples have already been intimate with each other prior to marriage and have even conceived a child out of wedlock? Some of those couples have gotten married and are still married. Praise the Lord. I'm glad that that's working out, and that's great. But not all couples are that way. That doesn't always happen. I heard of a couple that were intimate before marriage and conceived a child, and the couple was from another state, so it's not anybody that you would know. I'm just putting that disclaimer out there for you today. I'm not talking about anybody in the, in the church. I'm not talking about anybody in the community. This is someone from a, a far-off different state. They felt like they had, uh, they had to get married because they had conceived this child together, which they did, but the husband eventually left the marriage because he never really wanted to be married. He didn't want to have kids at this stage of life. He was in college. What he really wanted was to experience intimacy without commitment. That's what he wanted. And this human sinful behavior just got out of control, right? Next thing you know, his girlfriend's pregnant and they have a child on the way. And that's not even what he really wanted. Maybe not what she wanted. 
So justifying our sin is not limited to just the act of intimacy. We may justify having too many alcoholic drinks. We may justify using illegal drugs because it helps to, with pain and anxiety and depression or whatever else. We may justify that uh, not paying all of our taxes. We may justify looking at pornography. We may justify gossiping. Every one of us knows the areas where we justify our sin, where we say, oh, it's not really that bad. It'll be okay. Everybody else is doing it. it uh, we do all these things to justify the sin, and God's saying to us that through his Holy Spirit that lives within us, he says, I don't want you to keep doing that. I want you to stop doing that. And so maybe the second next step to, is for you today, and that's to stop justifying my sin, confess it before the Lord, and repent. There's where the healing begins. Many of us believe that marrying the person we have been intimate with will somehow make things right, and that, always, that doesn't always work out. And that's probably what Shechem was thinking when he asked his father to get Dina as his wife. So the violation had taken place and Dina had been defiled. Hamor approaches Jacob to negotiate a marriage agreement. That's our second point today is negotiation. And it's verses 5 to 24. So we're just going to uh, take it a couple of verses at a time. Look at verse 5 with me, if you will. We see these words. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dina had been defiled, his Sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. So we see here first Jacob's reaction. He was home by himself when he learned that Dinah had been defiled. His sons were in the field with the livestock, and Jacob just remained quiet about it until his sons came home. Jacob doesn't overreact at this point. He doesn't do anything hastily or impulsively. I'm sure that he's angry and upset, that his daughter had been raped, but he doesn't do anything rash. I think that just shows his maturity. He's like, I'm not going to just, okay, I'm going to wait for my sons to get home, and then we're going to talk about this and, and, and figure out a plan. That's not the case with his sons, though. Look at verses 6 and 7. We see Jacob's sons' reaction. This is what they do. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk to Jacob, now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. So we see here that uh, as Hamor went out, that's the same Hebrew word that we saw in verse 1, Yatza, to talk to Jacob. Jacob's sons were there because they immediately came in from the fields when they heard what had happened to their sister. And they were filled with grief and fury. So they're passionate, right? I see this in, in uh, you know, the younger generation from where I am now. My own children, you know, they, they get really passionate about certain things. And boy, they want to go do something about it right now, right? Very impulsive. And I used to be that way too. And now I kind of just sit back, okay, let's just take a breath. Let's think this through. Let's pray. <laughs> let's ask God what he wants to do in this situation. And so I'm not as impulsive as I used to be. But I see that in my own children. We see that here with Jacob and his sons. They're very impulsive. They were filled with grief and fury. An uncircumcised man had been intimate with their sister. And what Shechem did was something disgraceful against Israel. That's interesting that he uses that term Israel as though he's talking about the entire group. I think that's what he is. It's like they're not particularly a nation yet, but will be the nation of Israel. But he's talking, they've done it against Jacob and his family. And this is something that should not have been done. 
And as I mentioned earlier, rape is never right. And Shechem had not only destroyed and dishonored Jacob's family, he challenged a normal way of sexual matters for the nation of Israel. And he stripped Jacob of the opportunity to make the choice of who Dina should marry. He just got everything out of order. And Dina would be considered, quote-unquote, used goods, which would make Jacob's job of finding her a husband more difficult. That was another aspect of this whole thing. And Homor appeals to them and tries to smooth things over. We see his offer <clears throat> to the family members in verses 8 to 10. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us, give us your daughters, and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, which means you know, just move about freely, and acquire property in it. And so this is the offer. Hamor tells them that Shechem's heart is set on Dina as his wife. Of course he was, because he was trying to justify what he had done wrong. He was trying to make right what he had done wrong. And so we see the offer here. It's intermarriage with, with us. You can intermarry with us. We'll, give us. we'll give you our daughters, and we will take your daughters in marriage as well. And then he says, you can settle among us, and it kind of uh, plays out in several different ways. The land's open to the Jacobites. Hey, you guys can just move about freely. You can live here. You can trade in it, which means move about freely, and purchase property of, uh, of their own. Property rights would have given the Hebrews full partnership with the Hivites. That's significant. And you're going to see why it's significant in just a little bit. So Homor has made this offer to Jacob and his sons, but Shechem is so eager and excited about taking Dina as his wife that he speaks up and makes a greater offer. Look at verses 11 and 12. Then Shechem said to Dina's father and brothers, let me, have, let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the girl, uh, yeah, and the girl uh, I am to bring as, uh, as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. And so <clears throat> what's going on here is Shechem is just blinded by, quote-unquote, love, but more likely lust. He's so desperately wants to find favor in the eyes of Jacob and his sons that he offers them basically a blank check. He says, you can name any bride price that you want, and, even, uh, and I'll make it happen. He also offers a gift to Dina as part of the deal. And so we're going to see later on in the law, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 to 29, and... Um, Jackie shared some of that with us this morning. In the case of a rape and an, of an unbetrothed virgin, the law demanded payment of 50 shekels of silver in marriage without the possibility of divorce. Shechem was offering much more than 50 shekels of silver. And then we see Jacob's son's proposal in verses 13 to 17. Look at those verses with me, if you would. Because their sister... Dina had been defiled. Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a, dis disgraceful, that would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. 
Then uh, we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you uh, will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Because Dina had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully. They told Hamor and Shechem that they could not give Dina to an uncircumcised man. It would be a disgrace for their sister to marry a man outside the family uh, covenant with God. It was deceitful because they led Hamor and Shechem to believe that the only thing keeping them from intermarrying was circumcision. It was so much more than that. That wasn't God's design for the Israelite people. And so Jacob's sons would consent to the marriage on one condition. They'd have to become like the Jacobites by having all their males circumcised. So Jacob's sons would agree to Hamor's offer of giving and receiving their daughters in marriage, settling among them, and becoming one people with them. If the Hamorite uh, men refused uh, the proposal, then they would take their sister and go. Gango and Bramer say this, the real sin was with Jacob's sons, who used the sign of a spiritual covenant with God as an act of treachery to exact revenge. Griffith Thomas points out, circumcision without faith in the covenant God could not be anything but carnal and earthly. And worse still, they were about to employ the solemn seal of divine covenant for the purpose of wreaking their revenge on these unsuspecting men. Their suggestion was therefore nothing more than a pretext to cover treachery. There was the appearance of piety with the reality of intended murder. Could anything be more truly terrible? What a light it sheds on the state of Jacob's home life. So our fourth principle today is this. God is dishonored when we take the sacred and make it secular. What have we taken that's sacred and made it secular? You know, Christmas and Easter, Easter could certainly fall into that category, couldn't it? Depending on how we celebrate them and what we focus on when we celebrate. Some people, including Christians, have taken intimacy between a man and a woman and have made it secular by practicing it outside of marriage. Our culture has taken God's design for marriage and made it something he never intended. He never intended same-sex marriage. It's not a part of his plan. Our culture has also taken God's perfect creative power and twisted it by saying that there are more than two genders, more than just male and female. There isn't. There's only two. They've also twisted God's sacred creative power and have basically said that he made a mistake in creating one person male instead of female and vice versa. God doesn't make mistakes when he creates us. He creates us male and female. That's what he said in Genesis. He's a perfect God, a holy God. He doesn't make mistakes. Some people have taken God's inerrant word and have said that, that there are mistakes in it. There aren't. Some of the preaching and teaching that takes place in churches today is sacrilegious. Some churches have taken the sacred role of pastor and elder and made it secular by allowing homosexuals to serve in those roles. Even some of our worship music has crossed the line from sacred to secular because guess what it does? It focuses on, on us. What can God do for me? What is he doing for me? Instead of worshiping him as a holy, righteous, just, faithful, loving God, instead of crying out the, his attributes, we're focusing on ourselves. We can even take prayer and make it secular, right? 
we hear it all the time. People who aren't really religious will say, hey, you're in my thoughts and prayers. Right? We've taken prayer and made it secular. We've taken God's power to give and take life, and we've said, we know better. Whether it's abortion on one end or euthanasia on the other. Right? We're like, we know better. And so we've taken all these things that God has created as sacred, and we've made them secular. And so maybe you're ready to take this step today, and that's to confess the areas of my life where I have made the sacred secular and repent of it. Shechem did not waste any time, though. Look at verses 18 and 19. We see his reaction. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem, the young man, who was uh, the most honored of all his father's household, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and, and Shechem liked the proposal. Shechem did not uh, lose any time in doing what they said. Some scholars believe that Shechem took a knife and circumcised himself, like right there. He's like, mm, I'm, I'm, I'm for it, let's go. Other scholars believe that he had someone else circumcise him immediately. It's like he, he's like, I'm, I'm for it, let's go. I'm not, not scaring me at all. He wanted to show Jacob and his sons that he was serious about taking Dina as his wife. He was delighted with her. And then they both went to the gate of their city to speak with their fellow townsmen. And we see the townsmen reaction in verses 20 to 24. This is what God's word says. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak with their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will consent uh, to live with us uh, as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them and they will settle among us. And then verse 4, all the men who went out of the city gate uh, with Hamor and his son Shechem and every male in the city was circumcised. So we see the circumcision, circumcision sales pitch. The men, the Jacobites, are friendly towards us, right? They're, they're, they're great people. Let them live in our land and trade in it. There's plenty of room. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. And here's their only condition. All of the males have to be circumcised like them. That's a small price to pay, isn't it? Eventually, their livestock, property, and all their other animals will be ours. So let us, get all, let us all get circumcised and they'll settle among us. There's two things that they omitted in their pr proposal or sharing the proposal with the townspeople. They did not tell the townsmen that Shechem had violated one of their women and he was seeking their hand, her hand in marriage. They didn't tell them that. They also didn't tell the townsmen that they had offered the acquisition of land to them, full partnership with them. They, they didn't tell them that either. But we see the townsmen answer. All the men who went out, here's that, a Hebrew word, again, that we saw in verses 1 and 6, that Yatzah, they went out of the city gate, agreed with Hamor and Shechem. All the males in the city were circumcised. Imagine for a moment how excited they all would have been. Hamor, Shechem, and the townsmen, because their future was bright. They would eventually absorb the Hebrews and all of their possessions. They had no idea that a trap had been set and was about to be sprung. <coughs> Our final point today is retaliation. 
Look at verses 25 to 31. Three days later, while all of the men were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and, and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else uh, of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed." But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? So three days later, this would have been <clears throat> from the circumcision. There would also have been a fever associated with the operation that would have made them feel even worse. And so while, they're, while they were most vulnerable, Simeon and Levi, along with their servants, attacked the city and killed every male. They also found Hamor and Shechem and put them to death. Here's our fifth principle today. Chasing sinful desires can be deadly. It was for Shechem. How many stories have we heard where someone is intoxicated and leaves a bar with another person who rapes them and or kills them? We hear it often enough. There's an increasing number of young people who are dying from fentanyl-laced drug use. There are so many other examples of how chasing sinful desires can be deadly. And you see sinful human behavior can easily get out of control. They found Dina in Shechem's home, and they left. The word left is the same Hebrew word as we saw in verses 1, 6, and 24. Yatza, which means went out. And then the sons of Jacob is probably referring to the other nine sons. They came upon the dead bodies and started taking the flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs. They took everything from the houses in the city and everything in the fields. They carried off the women and children also. John Corson says this, He who pitches his tent toward the world must not be surprised when his kids act like the world. And Jacob was experiencing that. And yet he still reprimanded them. Jacob obviously didn't know what Simeon and Levi had planned. When he found out, he reprimanded them. The word for stink may describe the foul odor emanating from dead fish or, and rotten bread, as Matthews points out. And Hamilton says this about Jacob. His concerns are tactical and strategic rather than ethical as in chapter 49, verses 5 to 7. We'll see that in the future. He is without the re resources to oppose a united force. Jacob has been reduced to a position of vulnerability. That's what he's saying to them. He's like, we're, we're vulnerable now. If they join together, we're in trouble. And then Simeon and Levi, they just respond with this rhetorical question. Should they have treated our sister like a prostitute? Jacob doesn't respond to that, at least not that we see here in Scripture. So, do you need to protect your children today? Young people, do you need to ask the Lord for wisdom concerning your friends and the places that you're going? Is there a sin or sins that you need to stop justifying and repent of? Are there areas of your life that you have made the sacred secular? Just be thinking about those things today. It was a small adjustment that could make a big difference. Sure, it was against NASCAR rules, but almost everyone else was doing it. So crew chief Tim Shute crawled under the number 20 car of Mike McLaughlin, who races on the NASCAR Bush circuit. 
Joe Gibbs, teen owner, teen own, team owner, <clears throat> is adamant that we don't cheat, says Shoot, a relatively new believer who in, encountered Christ at a Christian retreat for participants in the racing industry. Most teams figure that as long as you get away with it, it's not cheating. <laughs> Interesting concept there. I said to Mike that morning in practice, if we're no good in practice, I'll put this piece, the illegal piece, on. Probably 30 other teams are doing it. I was justifying it. I got up under the car. I got halfway through putting it on. And that verse, seek ye first the kingdom of God, came flashing in red in front of me. And whoa, that was it. I said, I'm leaving this up to you, God. Shoot, didn't put the piece on the car. McLaughlin won the race. It was Talladega, one of the biggest races of 2001. We, when we won, the first thing that came to my mind was that verse, Tim says, God wanted to show himself to me. Isn't that so true? We don't have to compromise. We don't have to justify sin because we don't have to sin. We don't have to give in to those temptations and those desires. We don't have to allow our sinful human nature to easily get out of control. It can be under control because of what Jesus Christ does for us because of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. You know, as the ushers come to take up the tithes and offerings and your communication cards, as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, would you just stand with me and let's bow our heads and just commit this to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we just come to you today and we are grateful for, even though um, we had to look into a very dark uh, section that doesn't seem to have any redeeming qualities in it, Lord God, we still can learn so much from your word. And we thank you today that even in, in these uh, passages that talk about uh, horrendous and heinous sins, Lord God, that you're in control. We thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord God, <clears throat> that when we commit ourselves uh, to you, that when we turn those things over to you, that you will forgive us we think it as your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, we just commit ourselves to you today. We just ask this in your precious son's name. Amen.